I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, your own Bible or a pew Bible, to Mark chapter 5. And we're going to start at verse 21, going through verse 43. A few words of introduction about this passage before we begin. Mark is the gospel that is all about action. It's all about Jesus as somebody who just gets up and goes and does things. Mark does not spend a lot of time generally on details. I'll give you one example. Mark does not talk about the childhood or infancy of Jesus at all. He leaves it to Luke and Matthew to talk about those things. Mark starts off with, the, with John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing. He baptizes Jesus. Jesus goes and is tempted in the wilderness, and on he goes into his ministry. Well, the other gospels spend a lot of time talking about all those things, and Mark compresses that into just a few verses because he's into Jesus going out and being God's power in the world, being active and doing things. So um, it is rare to see Mark take a lot of time to tell any one particular story. But what's interesting about our passage today is for 23 verses, he tells one story. Now, it's a story that kind of has two stories in it, which is also interesting. Um, we should be asking ourselves, what is it so that's so important about this story that Mark, who talks fast, 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 should suddenly slow down and take his time to get a lot of details in? There's something inside our passage today that's important. So, so we're going to look at that. Um, and in a, in a way, this story is an interruption in the flow of Mark. It, it, it's this change of pace. I'm going to ask you to allow God's word to be an interruption to you this morning as it's read. It's going to take a little time for me to read it. So whatever you do to open your mind, whether it's closing your eyes or maybe even your body posture could be like this if you feel comfortable to receive God's word, whatever it is that you need to set aside and leave somewhere else, but to open yourself up to this interruption that God's word is presenting us this morning. Let's look at our reading. Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? 
But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing that uh, what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to introduce you to two characters in this story. The first is Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. In the Greek, we have this phrase, he is the archesynagogus. He is the prince or the lord of the synagogue. That word arche is the word we get in Greek. We get the word archaic or archaeology, something that's old, something that's original, something that's way back in time or is the first among many things. And so Jairus was the first among many. He was like the prince or the lord of the synagogue. He was like the chairman of the church. He was like a very important person and kind of a big deal around there. He had a lot of honor, and he's the only person in this story besides Jesus and the disciples whom we learn the name of. The other, the other people that are important in this story, the woman and the little girl, we never hear their name, though we find that Jesus gives them names later, although names that are different from names that you're called when you're a child. This is a man who was the leader of the synagogue, and we read from, back from Mark chapter 3 that Jesus had been in this synagogue, or one near it, earlier on in his ministry, and he had healed a man with a withered hand, which was fine, except he had done so on the Sabbath, which was breaking the law. And it was from that moment, we read in Mark 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees and the other leaders, having seen this, started to devise a plot to take Jesus' life because of this. So this was a man who had either heard of or had actually seen Jesus heal somebody and do it on the Sabbath in contradiction to the law. We read here that somebody who has this much honor, which was really important back then, this much authority, this one, somebody who has such a good name and the only name in this story, when he sees Jesus, 
He does something that no self-respecting person would have done back then. He fell at Jesus' feet. Now, I want you to imagine that, um, say you go to a 4th of July parade. I don't know if Los Altos will have one, but let's assume Los Altos is going to have a 4th of July parade. And on the 4th of July, you go and sit along the street, and people, of course, throw candy at you as they go by. Um, the, the mayor of Los Altos is at the very beginning of the parade, and he's marching along, and there's a marching band after him. And he's marching along down the street, and suddenly he steps on his own shoelace. And he falls flat on his face and gets a bloody nose. And somebody's already laughing, and you haven't even seen it, right? And he gets up, and he dusts himself off, and he kind of goes on with the parade. But every time now that he goes to a town meeting, or every time that the city council does anything, or every time he shows up with the giant scissors and opens you know, a new museum or a new road, people look at him and go, yeah, but I remember that time you fell on your face. I just can't get it out of my mind. You lost, you lost something that day, you know, by falling down. Back then, this idea of honor was even a bigger deal. It was, it was more important than money in the bank. Your name was everything. Your family name was everything. Your family's honor was everything. It was more important than the land you owned. It was more important than all sorts of things. If you lost that, you lost basically everything in that society. So here's somebody with a lot of honor. He is the Arche Synagogus, the prince of the, the church. He throw, purposely trips on his own shoelace and falls down in front of Jesus. Why? Because he's desperate. He's desperate because his daughter's about to die. And you know what? I can relate to that. He makes a good choice here. He throws away all that honor, all that stuff that really matters then because he has this glimmer of hope that Jesus could do something for his daughter. And he's imploring Jesus. He's begging him. Time is short. The clock is ticking down, Jesus. If you hurry and get to my house in time, you may get there just in the nick of time to save my daughter. That's one character I want to introduce you to. The other character I want to introduce to you is this woman who doesn't have a name, unlike Jairus. We don't, and, she, and, and whereas he has all sorts of honor and, and a place in society that's exalted, she has exactly the opposite. She has a flow of blood that hurts her on several levels. One, physically. Two, it means that she can't have children. And in that society, your value as a woman was that you could produce children. You could have children. And your value was that you could be a wife. I'm glad our world isn't like that anymore, but that's the world they were in, okay? She could not climb and be the chairman of a corporation. It just wasn't in the, it just wasn't in the cards back then. So the, the, the two things that really would have given her identity in that society Getting married, nobody would marry her if she was not able to have kids. Getting married and having children were things that she would never be able to have. And you add to that, because of this medical condition, she was unclean by the religious laws of the time. And so she really needed to stay away from people. She needed to be at the edge of society. The only thing she had going for her was that at one point in her life, she had, she had had some money, and she, but she had used it all up. 
because she desperately wanted to get out of the situation of social isolation, but also a physical ailment. And she had spent all her money on doctors. Now, it says that she suffered under doctors, and I, I see a few doctors in the room today, so I don't want to say that we have all know what it's like to suffer under doctors, but, uh, but you know, going to the doctor's office isn't the most fun thing in the world. But there's, there's, there were only two choices, maybe three back then, if you had a real problem, a real medical problem like this woman. One was you could go to folk healers. These were people who would say magic incantations. They might put their hands on you in some weird ways. They might give you something to eat or drink that was made out of herbs, or they might ask you to put something on your body in the hopes that it would actually do you some good. Now, I think we understand that if it ever did anything, it would probably just make you worse, right? Eating all these weird things, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so that was one choice, and it's evidently not the choice that she made. It says that she went to doctors. That was a different class of healers, and that was the other medical choice back then, was to go to doctors. The problem with going to a doctor was that a doc doctors were, at that time were very reluctant to actually treat people. They would be held responsible if they gave you a treatment and it failed and you died, then the doctor could be held responsible. for Medicine was very different back then. Doctors back then often were more interested in philosophy than in physiology because they thought there was a sort of Aristotelian view of the body that came from Greek philosophy that the body and the, and the soul and having philosophy all tuned up would actually help, help you. And so if you went to the doctor's office, it was possible that you would simply get a lecture in philosophy in the hopes that that would cure you. And you could lose a lot of money that way. I want you to just imagine, this is as an exercise, imagine this, that you go to the doctor. You go in the waiting room, you put your name in. You sit there, a bunch of people's names get called before you. They finally call your name, you go back. They put you in the room and strap your arm down. They take some blood out of you, which is always fun. Right? Then somebody sticks something in your mouth and you says, they say, go ah, and you go ah, and they look around and they poke you and they prod you and they interrogate you and inquis inquisition you about your medical history. And then finally the doctor comes in the room and you say, doctor, what is it that I have? And the doctor says, well, just as is, can sometimes be used with existential force and sometimes with predicative force. It can also be used sometimes with predicative force and sometimes with the force of identity. Among predications, Aristotle distinguished between essential and accidental. With Socrates is a man being an example of the first and Socrates is pale, an example of the second. In regard to essential predication but not to accidental predication, however, Aristotle takes is to express identity. The former is to be understood as saying that Socrates is identically what a man signifies, whereas in the latter he is not identically what to be pale signifies. So to answer your question, I have not, no idea what's wrong with you, but we're going to bill your insurance carrier. Have a nice day. Now, if that's what a doctor's visit was, la was like back then, you can just imagine what suffering and what frustration this woman had gone through the only thing she really had was her fortune, and she lost it all with quacks like this, okay? Here we have two people, 
introduced to us who have totally run out of options. And they come to Jesus on totally different wavelengths. There's a man with a name and honor, and he throws it away in hopes of mercy. He's desperate, and he's got a clock ticking down on his problem. And then there's somebody with no name and no standing who actually boldly goes out and reaches for something that she desperately wants. She touches Jesus' clothes, and this power goes out of him. This is amazing. This is one of the more interesting healings in all of the Bible. This is one where somebody actually grabbed Jesus without him agreeing to it in the first place, without him engaging with them on any kind of interpersonal level first, without even asking for healing. She just took it. So I love that there's this man who has all the power, but he throws himself at Jesus' feet asking. And there's a woman with no power at all, and she just goes and grabs him. Two different people coming for healing in two totally different ways. Now, Jesus isn't mad. He's not mad at her for touching him. But he finds that it's important to stop at that moment, even though the clock is ticking, because he feels power going out of him. It's interesting that he's aware of this happening. And it's important to him that everybody understands right then and there exactly what it was that happened. That power had flowed out of him and into her. And healing had flowed out of him and into her. And cleanness, her uncleanness, his cleanness went into her. And her uncleanness vanished because he healed her. Remember I said that There's an interruption in this story, and the story itself is an interruption in the flow of how Mark is structured, because Mark just likes to tell things in rapid succession. But wait, right in the middle, 23 verses of this long story, and inside that story, another interruption. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. He's interrupted by this woman, and he takes the time to deal with the interruption. What's so important in this moment? This is a moment that's about the cross. This is a moment that's pointing forward to why Jesus came. Think about this. God came into the world in a form that we could touch. We call it the incarnation. Jesus, God made flesh, being born into the world. And in the act of touching God, power flows out of him and into us. Healing flows out of him and into us. Cleansing flows out of God and into us, and it happens at the cross as it flows out of Jesus. That's why this is so important. That's why the pause here. That's why the interruption. That's why God is so interrupted. And we think about the crucifixion. You think about the ministry of Jesus. It's a massive interruption In the story that God tells, it's the pivot point around everything else that happens in the Bible. It's the pivot point around which all human history revolves. It's an interruption. And it costs him something. He feels power going out of him. The same thing happens at the cross. It costs God something for his son to die. And it's an interruption. And Jairus is really feeling it at this moment, too. Because they were on the way to his house. They were marching along. And we don't know how, how long Jesus took to stop and turn around and say, who, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, who didn't touch you? 
And really, there's all sorts of people around here. But Jesus is scanning the crowd. This could have taken a while. And then he has to have this conversation with, with, with this woman. And you notice in the text there, it says that she finally realizes that she has to come clean about him. And she throws herself at his feet. And then she does something, which is that she tells him the whole truth. How long does that take? If I, if I were to start telling you the whole truth about me right now, uh, you'd have to cancel your lunch plans. You'd have to cancel your dinner plans. It would take a while. This is an interruption. She sits down and tells Jesus the whole truth. And Jesus listens, evidently. And you can just imagine Jairus saying, you know, you could do this later. You could come back to this lady. She'll still be here. You know? Jesus is interrupted. He's interruptible. He takes the time. And he gives her a name. She's nameless up to this point. She's out of community up to this point. She doesn't have anyone that she can rely on. And he gives her the name, and the name is this, daughter. He calls her daughter. Which you may say, well, that's not a name, but it is a name. It's a relational name. He's including her in community now. He's saying, your identity is now in the relationship that we have. And now she's been restored to community. So, the interruption's now over, we think. The whole truth has been told. They're about to set out for Jairus' house to heal his daughter. Who knows how long they've been waiting for that. When people show up and say, don't trouble the teacher. It's too late. Don't bother him. Don't interrupt him any longer. You had your chance. Uh, you missed it. Jesus says, well, she's not, you know, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they laugh. There's some comedy in this story. Um, verse 36. Look at verse 35 and verse 36. While Jesus was still speaking to this woman, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why trouble the teacher Verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. How do you say that to somebody who, a, a man who's just lost his daughter? How do you say that? Some of you have lost your children. How do you say that? Of course, Jesus has the goods. He can, he's the only one who can really say that. He can deliver. Chris and I have been watching the uh, Olympic trials on TV, the, the um, swimming and the, the um, gymnastics. Has anybody been watching those? And there's this commercial that comes on for McDonald's like every break. Have you guys seen this commercial? Where there's a young man at McDonald's and there's a, there's a, a cute young girl and she's kind of, he can't tell if she's looking at him or the picture of the McNuggets behind him at the, at the cash register. And he, you know, he's, trying to make eye contact with this girl, and there's this wise old man, kind of like a good angel over his shoulder behind him, and, and he says, buy the 20-piece McNuggets. They're only $4.99. And go share them with those girls, because girls love McNuggets. Who knew? You know, like girls love McNuggets. And, and the young man, who's kind of awkward and uncertain, you can tell he's taking in this wisdom from the older man. You know, He says, how do you, you know, how do you know all this? 
And what does he say? I've been around. The old man looks at him and just with knowing glance. I've been around. So you'd, you, of course, you'd have to cast an older man in that, in that story, in that commercial for that. Here's a really free paraphrase of verse 36. Everybody comes up to Jesus, says, it's too late, don't trouble the master anymore. The little girl's already dead. Jesus looks at him and says, I've been around. I've got this. I can handle this. They go to Jairus' house. He raises this little girl, and he gives her a name, too. She didn't have a name up to this point. He says, little girl, but it's this tender word. A few weeks ago, I preached from Romans 8. We talked about when the Bible starts using Aramaic, it's because something emotional is happening. And Jesus, we record his words here in Aramaic, talitha kum. It's this tender moment. Whereas before there was power coming out, now this is the Jesus of tenderness. Little girl, you could actually translate that as little lamb. Little lamb, get up. And there's this, it displays God's tender heart in this moment. And she, who, who has a family and has community, she's raised from the dead with this tender word of Jesus. And so she gets a name too on some level. And, that, and, of course, the story ends happily for everybody. It's a great story with a huge interruption, though, that points towards the cross. Now, I want to I just say one thing about healing in the Bible because I think we look at stories like this, and, I, and, and we all have somebody we know or personally have some health problems that we think about this. Um, there's an, it's important to make a distinction between healing somebody and curing somebody it's a distinction that I think could be helpful for us. Curing is probably more along the medical side of things. Curing is fixing something wrong with your body um, and, and dealing with it definitively. So, and until eventually something else comes along that you need to be healed for or be cured for, pardon me. So one example would be if you have an infection. Well, a cure could be antibiotics, and it deals with that infection, and it wipes it out. And if you do it well take it for all 10 days, it's gone. It's cured. Now, that doesn't mean another infection doesn't come along or something else can come along and, and, and happen to you. And in a way, curing somebody is like kicking the can down the road. You keep kicking it and kicking it and something else keeps coming up. Finally, there's a can in the road that's so big you can't kick it anymore, and that's death. You can't cure death. There's no cure for it. This is the biggest failure of medical science is it hasn't cured death yet. Nobody's figured this one out, and I don't think they will. There is no cure. There's no cure for death. Healing is different. The way healing works in the Bible, the way healing works in this passage particularly, is restoring somebody into community. And so while Jesus cured the woman with the flow of blood, and that allowed her to be in community, what he really did was he healed her. He put her into a place where she could now have relationships with other people in a meaningful way. And he starts by calling her daughter. He starts with that relational work right away. The same is true with this little girl. He cures her of, of death. And the only person who really can cure death is Jesus. But eventually she died. I mean, this is an old story. This is 2,000 years old. So we know she died. So he, he pushed her can down the road by curing her of death. But he healed her and he healed her father. Because his identity having been wrapped up in who he was and his position, he threw away and went to Jesus in faith, and it redefined him completely. 
So healing is being restored to community. And the reality is there's healing all the time. And when God, God may or may not cure us of anything that we have, but God will always heal us because God always stands ready to restore us to community. There is healing for death. There's not a cure for death, but there's healing for death. We call it the resurrection because the resurrection puts us into a completely new community up in heaven with God. And in that community with God, we are in the presence of the Father and we're part of the family that God is in as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's healing for death. It's the resurrection. Today, I'm going to ask us at the end of the service if you'd like to come forward and trouble the teacher. If you want to come forward and interrupt Jesus in what he's doing. And, and the deacons will be here. If you want to pray for cure, or if you want to pray for healing, or for both. And all three of those are great options. And the deacons will pray for you. Now, we don't offer you folklore. We don't offer you myth. We don't offer you philosophy. None of those things are going to help you right now. But what, what Jesus offers is himself, the God of power and the God of tenderness, the one who wants to restore into community. And so at the end of the service day, I'd like to invite any who want to come forward to come and receive God's, God's work in their life. Um, do we believe that God can cure us? Yes, but he may or may not. We don't know. But do we believe that God can heal us and bring us into community? Yes, always, all the time. And if we ask, if we interrupt the teacher, interrupt the master, we say, can you really do this? He'll look at us and he'll say, I've been around. I've got this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would heal us and cure us. Thank you for your work on the cross by which you saved the entire world. Amen.